Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 107. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording my end of this, our second interview episode on February 26, 2023, in Austin, Texas. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans, really my way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. Our guest today is Kenny Ryan, host of Another Great History Pod, Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. And we are recording his end from a secure, undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest. For those few of you who are new to this podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, except maybe in this episode in which there will probably be some presentism. <laughs> A British Presidential Histories podcast with Kenny Ryan launched its first episode at the end of March 2020 when I, at least, was still doom scrolling and wondering whether my wine supply would hold out and has progressed through the American presidencies chronologically. If you have listened to abridged presidential histories, you already know that it includes narrative episodes with a lot of amusing factoids told with humor in solo narrative form. I think you all know that I like that sort of thing. And some very interesting interviews with historians who are expert in the relevant presidencies. Kenny has reached the Hoover years and I, for one, am eager for his take on FDR. Beyond that, I'll let Kenny introduce himself and his podcast, and we'll have a conversation. So, in my best Sam Harris voice, I bring you Kenny Ryan. Kenny, how are you? <laughs> Thank you. I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you for that lovely uh, introduction. <laughs> well, if I got anything wrong, please uh, straighten us out. Uh, what no, you- no, that all sounded quite accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you just give us a little bit of background, uh, including where you grew up and uh, and also uh, how you got into the history podcasting game. Sure thing. I, I grew up in a neck of the woods familiar to you, Austin, Texas, right down there. Uh, that my childhood was spent in the creeks and woods around town, see, avoiding snakes and seeing what trouble I could get into. Uh, went to college at Texas A&M, and I was a journalist at first out of college. Uh, but I've always loved history. I was the nerd carrying around history books in middle school and high school and could never put them down. Uh, so it's, it's always been a passion of mine. Well, it's great. So you you got going as I did uh, in the pandemic. Was it a pandemic project, or had you already cooked up the idea before you uh, before you got going? I, I had cooked up the idea, and I'd say the pandemic was an accelerant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm launching the podcast. Um, you know, I think may- maybe even a year before, I-, I thought, you know, it might be fun to read a biography for every president of the United States. Uh, I'd-, I'd been sitting in the bar with a friend, chatting, and we're like, because we're st- we are this nerdy, we're like, hey, let's see if we can name every president and like something to know about them. And we're like, all right, cool, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, uh, uh, Madison, uh, Mon- Monroe. Oh shoot, what what, what come you know? And and I was like, well, maybe I should try and fill in those blanks. Like, it would be really fun to know more about the history of the United States from that point of view. So I started reading the biographies, and I was like, you know what? 
because I mentioned I used to be a journalist. I'm not anymore. So I have this storytelling itch that wasn't being scratched. And I was like, maybe I should start taking notes while I'm reading these biographies. And I could launch a podcast with that. I'd been thinking for years it might be fun to launch a podcast. So this could be a marriage of all these different passions and interests of mine. And uh, that that's what was brewing. I had the stack of notes. And then the pandemic started. And I was like, well, now I got time. <laughs> Let's roll. Indeed. Indeed. Well, that that's... Uh, um that's not way off from my idea, uh, my um, history with this thing. I think my listeners know I I had long harbored the ambition to read American history in some structured way and um, uh, uh, found, I found myself on a pandemic road trip in September of 2020, sort of on my own going. I, I cool. wanted to go visit my mother and then I wanted to go visit some friends who were willing and able to sit outside in September and October. So I drove four and a half thousand miles sort of solo and listened to a lot of podcasts and a, yeah. a uh, law school roommate texted me and said, Oh, I should listen to the history of England podcast. And I started listening mm, to that, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. granular and sequential from the beginning. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. I sort of wondered whether anyone had done it for the United States, and I dug around, and no one had, uh, really. There's been <laughs> yeah. there, there's a lot of American history podcasts, obviously, but there right. tend to be either bounce around. You know, they'll talk about the Civil War one day and FDR the next, or they're highly specialized, just the presidencies or the American Revolution right. and that right. sort of thing. So anyway. Uh, I thought that maybe it would be a good forcing function to keep me on the project of uh, reading in some organized way. And so I came back in October of 2020 and got to work on it and launched the first episode January 1st, 2021. So there you have it. Um, and, and how far, where are you in the narrative right now? You've, you've told everyone where I am. I, I Where are you? <laughs> uh, I am... Uh, in my narrative in the 1630s in New England right now. So uh, we have uh, the last episode was a uh, introduction to Puritan theology, which is more interesting than it sounds. And that sets up, <laughs> uh, at least to me, and that, that sets up a, a series of episodes on the dissidents in New England. Uh, Roger Williams mm, and mm. Anne Hutchinson. Uh, and then uh, from there... I suspect maybe we'll bounce back to Virginia for an episode or two. I haven't figured that out yet. And then we'll, we'll get into the Pequot war. So, uh, that's where mm. I am. That's where I am. I'm, if I'm, if I move at this pace, we may, get, we may get to King Philip's war by the summer. So that's a, <laughs> Hey, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, we can get a little bit back to how we approach podcasting and stuff later in the episode. Sure. But the 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 world out there loving sort of listicles uh, and so forth. Um, I'm curious yeah. how how all this work has has affected how you think about the presidencies. Um, uh, you know, which have moved up uh. and down in your personal estimation as you've dug in a little bit more. So, so like of of the past presidents who has risen in my opinion and fallen in my opinion as I've read about them. Yeah, as, right? as your prejudices yeah. have been swept away through the deep work of scholarship. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I think that uh, a president who I think 
more of is actually George Washington, which is interesting because uh, the country just faced so many challenges that you don't think of today. Like you're not used to thinking of the United States as the small guy, the the little runt on the world stage who everybody's pushing around. And that was the United States that George Washington led. And what a challenge that was. And, and a country that like we'd already tried one constitution. It had totally failed. Articles of Confederation. We're going to try a second one. If this fails, like that doesn't bode well. George Washington, you're responsible for making it work. So you know, the stakes were so much higher and the peril so much larger than you tend to think. So I, I think Washington, who already people are like, oh, he's, you know, he's he's the original founding father. Like, he's got to be one of the best. He is one of the best. And uh, the, 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 the perils and, and the things he overcame are so much more impressive than we remember. Um, and then a president I think I think less of, uh, and this is, I'd say, fairly common right now, would be, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I, I think he's had a bit of a fall in recent decades. And you know, I, I was talking to another presidential uh, podcaster and, and historian lately, and, and I, I quipped to them, you know, the more you learn about Thomas Jefferson, the less you like him, the less you like him. He, he's a guy that has, you know, we originally grew up, he's a founding father with Declaration of Independence, one of the first presidents, bought Louisiana territory. So you have like a pretty high opinion of him. You know, I mean, this is a guy when JFK was president, JFK once had all these smart people over the White House, a, a, a dinner of like all the scholars and people he's handing out awards to. And he was like, this is the greatest collection of, of intelligence in, in a White House ever since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. You know, like Thomas Jefferson was in such high regard once. But then you start digging more into him and you realize like, OK, hold on. While he was in Washington's cabinet, he was kind of starting an opposition party and leaking government secrets to the press and maybe to the French. And, you know, he was definitely raping a slave of his. And, you know, OK, OK. You know, things that objectively... Even back then, people knew weren't good, but he did a good job hiding it. And uh, so, so Jefferson is, I think, one who the more you learn about him, the more you're like, oh, Thomas, please, please stop. So um, to what degree on that scale, how do you weigh his presidency, which apart from the Louisiana Purchase mm. had its pros and cons, so his presidency is a totality versus the other credits and debits in his life. Uh, because when you sort of start adding up those, you, yeah, you get an awful question. lot on both sides of the scale, I guess. You know, he, yeah. If you're to zoom in like just on his presidency, one of the first really interesting things about it is he finds success by throwing away everything he ever said he would do as president. <laughs> you know, when he was outside the White House, he was like, Congress should take charge. The president must do what Congress says. The president must be bound by the Constitution. Can't do anything the Constitution doesn't say. And then he gets to the White House. And, you know, his, his greatest accomplishment is purchasing Louisiana, which was, you know, frankly, like a deal you can't let by that much territory, that much strategic, important territory for that price. Like, you got to do it. But the Constitution didn't really say you could. It was unclear, you know. And and if you wanted to do it the constitutional route, if you wanted to do it the way he always said you should do it, it's going to take time. And in that time, you could lose the deal. Because even the French were starting to be like, hey, we give these Americans too good of a price. <laughs> yes, no, uh, you know. So uh, he, he 
ignored and he questionably acted unconstitutionally to make that purchase, which good thing, honestly. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, you just got to be like, OK, these rules are getting in the way of good, of doing good. And so are these rules not good? Should they be ignored in this case? Which, of course, super slippery slope. <laughs> not when everybody wants to go surfing down. But in his case, he, he picked the right time to ignore it. That's it. So that's the height of his accomplishments, where there's the irony of him going against everything he'd ever said. But he he also, as president, I'd say one of the lows on his end is he did put in place the embargo policy, uh, which is Secretary of State, future president James Madison came up with. And the embargo policy, really interesting because – Today, arguably, it's part of uh, modern international diplomacy. You know, if you have a country, they're doing something you don't like, you put economic sanctions in place or you put trade embargoes in place. You know, you see us doing this right now with Russia. You see, We've done it in the past with Iran. We've done it in the past with Japan before World War II, you know. Um, a lot of times it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Arguably, the most successful use of this could be recently when Obama did it with Iran, and he actually got a nuclear deal out of it. I won't comment on what happened to the nuclear deal later. But, uh, you know, that was a case of you put in sanctions, you put economic pressure, and you get what you wanted out of it, and you're able to avoid war. The problem with when Jefferson tried this is, you know, I mentioned before, the United States is a runt on the world. Our contribution to anyone else's economy was microscopic. So when he says, okay, let's try this. Let's let's try this embargo. Um, England and France are at war. You know, they've been fighting wars for like 30 years. Napoleon's on the scene now, you know, uh, and they're both pressuring the United States to get involved on their side, stop trading with the other guy. And they're, they're, see they're both seizing American ships and screwing with us on the high seas. And Jefferson says, okay, you know what? We're not going to do any more trade with either of you until you stop it. And both of them were like, okay, we don't care. Like you're a you know, a microcosm in our economy. Well, the United States economy was like totally destroyed, uh, lots of money lost. You had a lot of piracy. You actually had some of the first loud calls for secession from the north of all places because the north was so damaged by the loss of the mercantile business. Um, and it, it just backfired horrendously, like one of the biggest cell phones in U.S. history. Interesting in that, hey, great, we're trying a new idea. Let's give it a shot. So you can give him credit there. I like the idea of trying new ideas. But it failed and they kind of stuck to it too long. And, you know, so so when you look at it in there, you'd be like, okay, more of an average presidency. Uh, still, I don't think if you're just looking at presidencies, who's gone up, who's gone down, he probably hasn't changed too much in terms of what he actually did during his presidency. But those are some of the top things that jump to mind in terms of a, a, an area where the guy really did right, an area where the guy screwed up. So... Um what about presidents who sort of did great things for the United States but have left us with a legacy that, you know, we struggle with today? The one that always comes to my mind, but I'm sure you know quite a bit more, is James Polk, who yeah. tremendously expanded the United States. We are grateful for yep. the fruits of his labor. And yet... Uh, we hate necessarily to sign up for it. It's sort of the thing. You know, it's one of those things that we might not do again. What, what are your thoughts on, <laughs> on, on that topic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. You know, when, when you say presidents who did things that 
uh, and like the legacy of it, like we wouldn't do it again. You, you could almost say any pre-Civil War president has a little bit of that stain on them because a civil war was coming. Slavery was just being ignored. And, you know, no matter what they all did, they, they could have done something more to try to address that. You know, obviously, these guys are all missing a little bit of something if you have a civil war coming. And Polk was a big domino in that, you know, uh, conquering the, the American Southwest, you know, manipulating the United States into war with Mexico uh, in a very questionable way um, to, to fill in the, the picture of, of what you might have been referring to. You know, Polk, he wanted he, he the United States had just bought Texas. Uh, Texas had fought as independence from Mexico. Um, but Texas and Mexico, when, when they signed that independence or, or agreed to it, they, they didn't really agree on where the border was. Texas said, our border's the Rio Grande. And Mexico was like, no, 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 your border's a river like 100 miles north of that. And so the United States gets Texas. We also get this border dispute. And Polk, <laughs> to, to provoke the war, because he doesn't want just the Rio Grande. He wants like California, Arizona. He wants all this territory. He sends an army down to the Rio Grande and just parks it there until the Mexicans get pissed about a United States army on territory they think is theirs and a war starts. So uh, Polk could definitely fit in that camp. But overall, yeah, I'd say so many presidents leading up to the Civil War, they ignored this question of slavery that everybody knew was festering. You know, every people had tried to deal with it. They tried to kick the can down the road. They tried to ignore it. They tried to solve it. And none of the things obviously quite worked. Now, the, the of course, funny counterfactual maybe is, okay, well, what idea would have worked? Ah, you know, good luck thinking of that. It's not like anybody's sitting here, even today, you talk about presentism, even presentism, nobody's sitting here being like, if only they had done this, slavery would have ended and it would have been easy. <laughs> yeah. But yet, you know, it, it was a, indeed. Yeah. And, and yet you can see, um, you know, imperialist ventures that might have been more successful and greater benefit to us today that didn't go through because of slavery. So. Um, you'll, re mm. you'll remember the details better than me. Cause I go back a long way on Polk, but I think, <laughs> I think the settlement of the Mexican war, uh, would mm. have essentially drawn a line not far North of Mexico city. And, 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 and we couldn't get the treaty enacted on our side ratified by the Senate because of the concern in the North that this territory would all become slave, which is sort of ridiculous if you've ever flown over it. Uh, but there might be another there might be another five Arizonas down there right now uh, had that treaty yeah. gone through. So the, so the funny thing on that is Polk sends a guy down to Mexico City to negotiate with Mexico. And the guy negotiates for what we currently have, which was about half of Mexico at that point. Like we really took like 50 percent of Mexico. Um, and that's what he's negotiating for. But as, you know, Polk's thousand miles away. And as he's like, we captured Mexico City. Like, wow, this is going really well. Polk starts wanting more. And that's where Polk starts thinking, maybe we should get what you mentioned. Like, maybe we should take more of Mexico. And he sends a summons for the ambassador saying, ambassador, you need to come back because I want to take more. And the ambassador ignores his orders. And he negotiates the treaty that we get. And he sends it back to the Senate. And at that point... Polk is like, well, shoot, I have a peace treaty that's been submitted to the Senate. I don't want this treaty. I want more. But I think it would be politically 
impractical to prolong the war, to demand more when there's a peace treaty here and the war is starting to become unpopular. And as you say, the North doesn't like this. You know, John Quincy Adams is in there in, in Congress every day being like, this is a war to expand slavery. This war is terrible. You know, you absolutely have that sentiment there. And, and so that's how we ended up getting the borders we got and not and that's why we didn't get more of Mexico, uh, because the ambassador went rogue uh, and just said, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just going to get what I'm going to take half. <laughs> half seems like enough. <laughs> and we'll call that a day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was very thinly populated at the time, but uh, it would probably be. Some yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent resort country and so forth. Now today, if uh, if uh, that it had, if, it, if it had turned out that way, I don't know. I realize that's completely uncool to say, but that's the way I roll. Um, how do you um, how do you think about uh, and we've been touching on this already a little bit, but as you go through, yeah. uh, how do you think about the problem of uh, ex ante before the fact versus ex post facto assessment of a presidency? Um, you know, like um who are some of the presidents that you've covered so far who were seen to have done a good job at the time? Uh, and mm -hmm. subsequently, we've uh, revised our view and, and perhaps become more critical once we know, of course, yeah. the downstream effects. And that's a really interesting question because that is constantly happening. You know, like I mentioned, the past 30 years, say, have been really tough on the reputations of Thomas Jefferson, Woodrow Wilson, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson. And, and those those are three guys who you read any of the recent stuff uh, and look at how they're rated in polls of historians, you know, their reputations have really gone down from where they were before and maybe where they were. Uh, questionably, when they were President Jackson, Andrew Jackson was certainly a very popular president when he was president. Um, and, and today we look back and we're like, okay, you know, Indian removal policy, like that it's not great. That That's part of a legacy that we're really not proud of, you know, uh, as in the present day, present times. Um, at the time, it was something that Americans in the South were clamoring for. It wasn't something universally supported by Americans. The Supreme Court, of all people, told him, like, you can't do some of these things you want to do. And he kind of ignored them, you know. Um, but he would be a, a great example. He also had some economic policies that were populist at the time, but maybe not the, actually the best for the American economy, which is kind of a funny thing. You know, you always talk about economic policy in any age. There will be the popular pressure for just what the people on the street want. Uh, but then you sometimes got to ask, like, is that really going to be what's best for the economy? You know, so uh, back then, the strains where there was uh, one of his big rivals, a guy named Henry Clay, he wanted to raise tariffs, raise money, and fund um, national development like roads and uh, canals and harbors, things that, you know, nowadays you look back, you're like, yeah, that, that would have really helped the country develop economically more. Um, but Jackson was of the opposite. He's like, no, no taxes. We're not going to do any of that stuff. He also killed the Bank of the United States, you know, which also took away another source of funding because... Uh, it's it's always been common through all of American history that people are suspicious of banks. <laughs> they always look at those bankers. Back then, it was like, why does that banker have such a nice house and such nice clothing when his hands are never dirty? And mine are because I'm out working in the field. What's he doing to make all that money? You know, so Jackson would be an example of one who at the time, super popular in retrospect, 
not not he didn't do a lot of policies that that through better economic understanding, better uh, humanitarian, philosophical uh, sensibilities or modern sensibilities, you know, that we would consider kosher or, or approve these days. Um, and then a, a guy who's risen might be Ulysses S. Grant, whose reputation has really been a bit of a roller coaster. You know, as president, he was really pretty popular. I mean, he's the guy who saved the union, so he's always got that going for him. Obviously, very unpopular in the South, but very popular in the North. He was the first person to run for a third term, almost got it, you know, uh, lost in the convention. Then his reputation really took a dive for many years as part of the kind of the, the myth of the lost cause and the uh, revisionism took hold and he began to be viewed as a drunkard and very corrupt. Uh, and then the past 30 years, his reputation's kind of come up again as people start looking beyond that and, and going back to the source material of what did this guy actually do? Oh, wow. He like destroyed the original Ku Klux Klan. That's pretty cool. He invented the dust Justice Department to protect the freedmen in the South. Like, you know, he was trying to make a positive reconstruction happen. It failed, but is that his fault, you know? So those are some guys who have gone up and down. And, um, you know, when I think of who I think is next, uh, I've, right now you mentioned I, my episodes are out about Hoover, FDR is coming up. Reading-wise, I'm like reading about JFK and LBJ right now. And I think those are two presidents who are probably next up in getting a historical reevaluation. I think that JFK is going to start kind of losing clout in the popular recollection of him. Uh, and I think LBJ is going to start gaining clout as people start looking more and more at a lot of the legislative achievements he had and maybe judging him less harshly for Vietnam. Not that anybody's ever going to say he did great in Vietnam because he didn't. Uh, that's just what I think is is next up around the corner. Yeah, LBJ is uh, an interesting case. And I say this with great uh, respect sitting here as I am in Austin. But, uh, right. you know, I think the he, ghost of him is going to give you a tongue lashing. I'll be <laughs> interested to see how you, how you treat him. You know, um, he's somebody whose pre-presidency and personal character would, you know, shall we say, weigh him down a bit. Um but mm. as a president, um, you know, he was hugely consequential for yeah. better and for worse. And, and if you sort of say, yeah. you know, let us rank presidents for the downstream effects that they've had, especially if you say for better or for worse, his downstream effects, right. were, <laughs> yes. his downstream yeah. effects were extraordinary uh, yeah. as president. So that's an interesting one. My uh, father, uh, as I think you know, my father was a historian. He wasn't uh, a, a special, he didn't specialize in American history, although it was his sort of second field in graduate school. But he always had an observation, mm -hmm. which I'd be interested in your thoughts on. He, he he was of the view that the history of a presidency didn't really stabilize until mm. books could be written by people who were not politically aware at the time. That is, uh, you know, and he sort of said sort of it takes about 50 years because you really need somebody who was, 
you know, at the most in sort of the sixth grade uh, while the yeah. controversies of the presidency were going on. And I, I guess by, totally. Totally. Uh, you know, by that logic, uh, I at least will not live long enough to see uh, what I think would probably be a very interesting, you know, uh, um, biographies of or assessments of the Trump and Obama presidencies, which yeah. are, yeah. Um, I think, both uh, uh, have set themselves up for potentially extremely long term consequences uh, and uh, very difficult to anticipate now, even though half the country is extremely passionate about uh, each of those men, different yeah, half. <laughs> it's, right, right. I, I'd say I definitely agree. History it evolves over time, our perceptions, and there are certain milestones that you know it will change. You know, like what, what I always loved when I was a journalist, so thinking of journalism as the first draft of history. So you might say, like, there's the in the moment <laughs> opinion of the people, and then as soon as they're out of office, then you start getting the first wave of what people really generally consider history, history, you know, your first wave of books uh, about the person written by people who were alive, uh, who can talk to people who were alive and part of it. And so it's kind of uh, if if the journalism is almost like the uh, first hand account of history, then you have the second hand account of history uh, of people talking to people who are alive and getting that perspective. And then, like exactly what your dad said, you know, I think it's about 50 years later when the people who this was very like they remember this. This was part of their life, seeing these battles in the news when those people are not writing the history, when the next generation is the generation of people who are like, OK, I've, I've heard of this person. But like, I, I you know, I wasn't alive when they were president. I wasn't alive when they were a big thing. I, I don't uh, have a fixed opinion of them when they really start taking hold of the narrative is I think when you have a, a pivot and a detachment that allows a new viewing, uh, which is part of why I say like JFK and LBJ, I think they're, they're due is because I think that's going to be where we are in kind of the timeline of their post-presidency. And, and then beyond that, you never know when it will change again, but it will change again at some point. You know, like we were saying earlier, Thomas Jefferson over the past 30 years, he's gotten a real different shake than he had for the previous 200. For 200 years, he was pretty much reviewed as like uh, people loved him. He was the founder of the party. Like everybody was constantly saying what a great guy he was. And then as, uh, you know, maybe really triggered by in the 90s with DNA proof that he had father children with Sally Hemings. And that triggers a reevaluation that I think has been rippling through the historic community for 30 years or so. Um, so you never know when something like that will change. Maybe it's a new bit of scientific evidence uh, or just changing cultural values will make the country revisit somebody and think differently of them. Jackson, certainly. Whenever the United States culturally change in the moment to be like, you know what? Maybe we did treat Native Americans poorly, and that was a bad thing. And and once that becomes the kind of consensus of the country, then you look at someone like Jackson, and you're like, oh, oh, drat. Oh, that's not great anymore, you know? Um, yeah, so, so I think certainly there are triggers like civil rights movement can trigger a reevaluation 
of people from history. Uh, and who knows what's coming in the future? In the future, there will be social changes that we don't see coming where the opinions on things will change and all of a sudden we'll have a new filter for looking at old people and uh, we'll think of them differently, you know? How much of that, let's uh, drill in on Jackson a little bit. Um, yeah. Because I totally get your point, but but how much of that is also that we take for granted the long-standing accomplishments of the presidency, and sort of thereby discount mm. it. So, so, for, so for example, in Jackson's case, if you're my age anyway, he was always yeah. understood and taught as the real founder of American democracy. Before Jackson, right. before Jackson, it was not a real democracy by any measure, even. Once you get past the question of which genders and races may vote, uh, you had very constrained yeah. franchise up until Jackson and Jackson changed that by the time of his president, by the end of his presidency, you know, essentially all free men could vote and it was a real game changer. Right. And, uh, you know, it would be in my mind, but, but it's become so, so much part of our background so much part of our underlying yeah. assumptions that we sort of forget yeah. that accomplishment and say, and look what a bad guy was toward the indigenous peoples. And that's a, that's a very much settled case as well. But yeah, but you're no longer giving full, full credit on the other side of the scale. To me, I struggle with these kinds of things like, like how much are, you know, um, well, you got the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've got three things that come to my mind, and we'll see if I can remember them all. <laughs> I'll yeah. forget one midstream. Um, the the first thing that comes to mind is I I do certainly think that there's a little bit of an element of uh, if you're a historian writing books, it's gonna be more compelling if you have a new take on somebody old. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the literary agent isn't gonna want you to write the. 50th glowing <laughs> book about a dead president. They're going to be more interested if you've got a hot take <laughs> on how they should be revisited, reevaluated. There's something new. Something has to be different. So that does play a little bit into the let's let's forget a little bit about maybe uh, some of the the things that we've always understood about this person, or or let's pay less attention to the stuff we've always talked about and pay new attention to this new thing, this new controversial thing. Let's really go in there because that's where the, that's how you get your book deal. So there is, I would agree, a little bit of that. Um, but one other thing I just want to mention is, you know, we talk about Jackson. He's so often viewed as, as he is. He founded, you know, the Democratic Party, which was one of the first mass populist parties where people beyond the ruling class were voting. You know, as you point out, like, you could almost, I had this interesting conversation with someone uh, in the fall about how our, we think of the United States as a static democracy, but it has gone through numerous different shifts where you could almost say we've had like five to seven different forms of government, if you want, by looking at the different levels of uh, voting uh, suffrage proliferation. You know, you might say that the start of the country from George Washington until about Jackson was the first phase where, you know, it's it's really it's the the 
super wealthy. Like it's an oligarchy, you know. It's it's the wealthier in charge. You people aren't, and this some of these won't change for many more years. You don't have direct election of senators. Uh, the president early on was picked by this electoral, uh, well, still the electoral college, but you were electing electors. You weren't voting for the president. You were voting for your elector to go to the electoral college. You know, there were a lot of changes in that. Um, and so he was definitely at a moment, an incision point of when that changed. But how much of that did he do? Now, we talk about the expansion of anybody, more people can vote. In New York, that was driven by Martin Van Buren, who would actually be his vice president. You know, And for Martin Van Buren, it's a very political thing. Van Buren was part of this uh, coalition that was not in power. And they figured, well, one way to get us more power is if we become the party supporting more people can vote. Let's let's go ahead and expand the electorate to like any white person, you know, um, and I forget if it's like you don't need property anymore. Some, somehow they did something that made it easier for white people to vote. And they got that through. All those white people joined the rolls and they were very grateful for the new ability to vote. And so it worked for Van Buren. And Van Buren, he partnered, like Van Buren's the silent partner in founding the Democratic Party. It's him and it's Jackson. Jackson had the personality to lead. He was the natural leader. Van Buren was the backroom politician, you know. Uh, so certainly Jackson was the face of this change, but it was part of a change happening across the country. Now, in terms of things that Jackson did that we uh, forget and we, we should give credence for, one thing you can look at is the nullification crisis, which I think does get forgotten. Yes. And this was... Yeah, you know, and this was big. This was Jackson stepping up in a big way and holding the country together, uh, passing a test that, say, James Buchanan failed and other people, you know, might not have passed. And where South Carolina is is looking at some old documents, interestingly enough, uh, some early papers from Thomas Jefferson saying that states maybe should be able to nullify federal laws. And they pull that up and they're like, oh, look, Jefferson supported this. So we we don't want to follow a federal tariff law. So we're just not going to enforce it and we're not going to let federal agents enforce it. And you have a standoff of who, where's the power? Who has the supremacy to decide this? Is Can a state nullify a federal law? Um, if you say yes, then, whoa, that's a big can of worms. You know, like, where does that end? You know, if you say no, then, okay, you're going to have to have a showdown about it. And Jackson was very firm. He, like, moved military units around in the South to make sure the units in South Carolina were loyal to the Union. He sent more folks down. He seized weapons. You know, he applied some political pressure. And he prevented what, you know, it could have been South Carolina. They like they were calling conventions. They could have seceded. You could have had like a civil war back there in the 1830s, if I remember right. Uh, but it was avoided because Jackson took such firm steps to say, you know, whatever negative things we say about him, he friggin loved the union and he wasn't about to let anybody break it apart. If Jackson had been president in the late 1840s or 1850s, would civil war have been avoided? That's a weird counterfactual. I guess it's tough to answer. It's a weird. It's it is tough to answer, but I think certainly if he was pre elected president in 1856 when Buchanan was elected, and states started trying to secede, we know what like we we've seen the Jackson playbook. I think we know that he would not have just sat on his hands for uh, months and let it happen. He would have done something. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so um. 
of the presidents you've covered to date, like who's your favorite person? Who 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 uh, could you most imagine being um, uh, friends with or wanting to shoot the breeze over beers with? That kind of thing. Yeah. You know, there, there's a great temptation to, to say Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> because the guy just seems so dang entertaining. Like, it would be so fun to just be in his parlor room for an evening. Um, but, you know, like, when I read his personality, like, I'm not sure if that guy really had friends. He was just so, like, constantly in motion and so manic. And so, you know, as his daughter said, like, he was the bride at every wedding, the corpse of every funeral. He had to be the center of everything. So I'm not sure I ever would have gotten the personal validation in a friendship that I like to get. Uh, so if if not TR, even though he is such an interesting character that you would just love to spend time with him, uh, maybe John Quincy Adams. Uh, he's John Quincy Adams, just a guy I, I love uh, because he, I mean, he's so flawed. He's so human. He's, he's choralist. He's stubborn. He's, he's so relatable in these ways. He's not going to be a guy on a pedestal. Uh, like, like if you met, say, George Washington, you'd be like, oh, man, like I can't be friends with you. You're, you're, you're on a freaking pedestal. Um, he, John Quincy Adams had a sharp wit, a sharp mind. He had seen the world and so many things in it. Um, I think he would be a real cool person to be friends with. Uh, but you know, Abraham Lincoln would be another one. By all accounts, Abraham Lincoln was just a folksy, charming guy who was funny and cool to hang out with. Did, <laughs> so did Lincoln, he, he would be another one that you would be friends with. Did Lincoln have close friends? Huh. You know, it's been a while since I read into Lincoln. I believe he did. Uh, in fact, he, I, I want to say there were some men he was such close friends with through his life that some modern scholarships wonder if they were homosexual relationships. Um, uh, yes. I'm not saying that they were. That's just a sign of how close these friendships were, you know. So he, he certainly did at, at different points in his life have incredibly close friendships. That that might be presentism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cl- close male friendship. Um, but at the same time, you know, when, at the same time, when you look at how, you know, the percent of people who are homosexual, it's like we probably had a homosexual president at some point. Oh, yeah. Or one who might have indulged at some point in his life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet that's entirely possible. I, 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 uh, and, you know, I mean, Lincoln did have a famously unhappy marriage not that i'm a expert at <laughs> it but true. you know so maybe, yeah. maybe maybe there's something there but i'm not uh i'm 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 a, I'm a skeptic on that one but maybe it's only because i haven't read sure. read, yeah. read yeah. a lincoln biography in a long time so i don't know um, yeah yeah I'm, I'm i'm dubious too um so it i suppose the the question of who would be fun to hang out with a little bit depends also on on what you like to do it seems to me oh yeah that's true it seems to me that if you like to stay up all night smoking cigars drinking and playing cards you got to go with harding you know harding or chester arthur okay uh chester yeah chester (laughs) arthur was another one like he was his nickname was the gentleman boss he was a guy who just like that's all he did is like smoke filled rooms playing cards make like playing games with folks like he was loved for that um harding 
certainly would would be very renowned for being personable, super friendly, you know. But here's where I'm going to throw you. I'm going to say if you ever get a time machine and you want to find a guy to play poker with in a late night room and have some laughs and drink some drinks, go track down Chester Arthur. You're going to have a good time. So that's a good question. Should our politicians be doing more of that today? Um, more <laughs> smoke-filled rooms, drinking drinks, playing cards. Yeah, especially <laughs> I'd especially say, across party lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'd say relationships are incredibly important in politics. You know, the presidency is one of these offices that uh, uh, I've so often seen people say that the biggest surprise for someone when they become president is how little power they actually have. Because they might say, do something, but there's a million layers of bureaucracy between them and the thing getting done. And uh, that also goes for if they want laws passed, if they want legislation to happen, you need to develop those relationships. So uh, yeah, if you're a president, you should be having social outings um, with uh politicians of both parties, of all stripes, uh, in Congress, in the Senate, in the bureaucracy, you should be trying to nurture those important relationships. And if, if you look to the early republic, one of the really key lubricants of making the system work was dinner parties that the president would host, and people are all invited over. The first lady, like an unofficial role, but an incredibly important role, because she often hosted these, and she was in charge of making sure that people were having a good time and getting the right amount of drink and loosening up a bit and being able to like break through some of the logjam of politics. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll agree with you on that. Interesting. So uh, I didn't prep this question, but uh, um, yeah. who's your gestalt? Who were who your favorite first ladies? Ah, favorite first ladies. Um, you know, Eleanor is really, I think, awesome because she, more than any other first lady I can think of, did her own thing and became an independent woman and had things she cared about and pushed the needle on them and, you know, really made an impact uh, throughout her life. Uh, so I think she's a, an easy one. That's a popular choice. That's me pandering. Potentially, someone I, might I, say I have a uh, I have a uh, a brief um, a brief uh, uh, anecdote on that one though, which I think was funny. My dad had a uh, a pretty good collection of 20th century uh, campaign buttons, certainly through the 70s. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and there was a Republican button. I think from the Wilkie campaign, but it wasn't clear. It it just said, we don't want Eleanor either, which I thought was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, I, I wonder how many first ladies got their own opposition button. You know, like that's impressive. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I, I yeah. can think of one other who did, but, but uh, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> um, if I were to think of other first ladies, Dolly... Uh, was legendary for the fact that um, she was on the DC scene for so long. And uh, Dolly Madison, yeah, yeah. you know, James Madison, president from 1809 to 17, if I remember right. Yeah. And Dolly's have you, have you, have you been another. Have you been to Mount Pelier? In Virginia? I have not. I would love to. I did that. Uh, I, I did that at some point. I go to Charlottesville every six to eight weeks to visit my beloved oh, mother. Fun. And uh, yeah. at some point, I think in November, I uh, 
left some time on my drive back to Dallas and spent a couple hours there. That's 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 an easy one to do if you uh, if you find yourself uh, in that part of the country. Sorry to interrupt. I would definitely love to. No, 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 no. I would love to get out to get to Mount Vernon someday, Mount Peoria. I haven't been to Boston either. There's a lot of history there. There's so much Eastern seaboard history I want to go check out. Um, But Dolly, she's around for like, if I remember right, like another 30 or 40 years and is like becomes the grand matron of Washington. And and every presidency that comes through, you know, the first lady will turn to Dolly for advice and and, uh, mentorship on how to be a good first lady and how to play this game that, you know, so well, here, you know, I rarely read about a president's wife being excited that she became the first lady <laughs> and excited that her husband became president because it takes so much time, so much stress. And uh, it's not something that like they are definitely it's not something they wanted. Polk's wife is an exception. Polk's wife wanted Polk to be president. Uh, but Dolly provided so much mentorship. She's really interesting. Um, I also, you know, I've been reading about LBJ lately. I I do kind of like Lady Bird just because she seems to be this really soft uh, um, person who comes like LBJ comes in with all his gusto and and firm handshakes and super macho-ness and and burns people and rubs them wrong sometimes. Then Lady Bird comes through and says, thank you. You know, and maybe and smooths things over, you know, if you've ever lived in Austin, you got to. You gotta love Ladybird. I mean, there's no way around it. Yeah. Have I uh, a half block block from my house? Half block uh, is one of the Austin Moon Towers, which we need not go into, but we owe their survival <laughs> to Ladybird Johnson. So anyway. Yeah, I, and I'm actually unsure. This is like one of these like childhood memories. That you're like, is that real or not? I have a vague childhood memory of being on like a field trip to like a butterfly sanctuary and an old lady telling us stories. And there's a little part of me that's like, was that Lady Bird? Yes. What? Like, I can't remember, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, yeah. um, she. All right. For all the viewers here, there are these big old towers in Austin that have lights on top and they give off roughly the ambient light of a full moon. They are called moonlight towers, moon towers here, and they were prevalent all over the country. In fact, all over the world during that brief period between electrification and street lamps. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so cities put these up. Austin had a uh, before it had any street lighting, had a very famous crisis around a serial killer. And they decided to light (laughs) their streets and they they Mm. bought Detroit's moonlight towers when when mm-hmm. Detroit was electrifying with individual mm, street mm. lamps and the Detroit moon towers came down here and they were put up and Austin alone of more than a hundred cities in the world that had these things kept it up um, mm. and then uh, in the mid 60s maybe later than that Lady Bird Johnson uh, decided that they needed to be refurbished. And she organized a fundraising campaign to reestablish them. And they're a famous thing about Austin now. So anyway, any of yeah. y'all come Everybody down here? Everybody loves Lady Bird in Austin. We got the lakes named after her now. Yeah. Yeah, everybody loves Lady Bird. Yeah. <laughs> Although if, if you're cool and local, you still call it Town Lake. <laughs> but uh, That's true. That's, when I was a kid, it was Town Lake. It's, town Lake. it's, still, <laughs> it's still Town Lake. You, you reveal yourself as yeah. a total newbie if you call it Lady Bird Lake. Um, yeah. All right. So... Um, 
Um, what presidential administration would you like to, assuming time machine, vaccination against all diseases, all those usual things, what presidential administration would you like to have worked in? Um, Lincoln, you're, you're trying to save the damn country <laughs> and you're working with a guy who knows how to laugh things off when all the pressure of the world is on his shoulders. Like, I, I cannot think of a more uh, compelling and, and proud administration to work for. Fair enough. And especially from the vantage point of our values today, that's that's got to be an easy one compared to many of the subsequent <laughs> ones. That was yeah. that was a dumb question. I shouldn't have even bothered with it. <laughs> no, no. Good question. Good question. <laughs> um, so pre-FDR, who today – all right, so in your mind, who today – Given yeah. revised history, given revised takes, right. yeah. who today is the most overrated pre-FDR president? Um, you know, we, we talked to some of these earlier, so I'm going to skip over them, but a case could be made for uh, Jefferson, put perhaps Jackson or Madison. But instead, I'm, I'm going to go to one who has like a, a real cult of personality that I don't quite get. And that's Calvin Coolidge. Um, Calvin Coolidge was basically an empty suit who didn't do anything. You could have put a monkey in the White House and you would have had the same administration. The guy did absolutely nothing. Um, but there are some people who love that. And uh, that's one that I, I don't get. So certainly I, I didn't name a president there that everyone's like, oh, man, this guy, everybody loves this guy. And oh, Kenny thinks they shouldn't. Um, this is a guy that most people don't think of. But the, there's some who really like him. and I don't get it. Well, Coolidge uh, has gotten a little bit of a um, a little bit of a revival, I think, in recent years on the political right in this country. Uh, and yeah. and that has. I think corresponded with some, you know, interesting writing about which there's still plenty of controversy to be had over the ultimate legacy of the New Deal and whether the New Deal was in fact successful or not. Amity Schley's book, The Forgotten Man, which I think one of your interviewees mentioned you know, it's certainly been influential mm. in certain circles uh, on the right. I think it's a good book, uh, whether you agree with every aspect of it. But that that diminution of the substantive policy outcomes of the New Deal um, mm. uh, versus other things that might define the Roosevelt administration, obviously the victory in World War II is an astonishing accomplishment. Um, um, but in any case, I think there's some of that going on with Coolidge. Um, and he was yeah. one of a long yeah. run of, of Republican presidents. He sort of sat between Harding as an obvious incompetent and Hoover. Yes. <laughs> Hoover, yeah. who is probably, you know, has the greatest ratio of non-presidential accomplishment to presidential accomplishment <laughs> in our history, right? I, I don't know if there's a better such example. So anyway. You know, I, I think one of the reasons Coolidge it gathers interest from uh, conservatives today is when they look back uh, for conservative Republican presidents, 
to pull up and emulate, there aren't a lot before Reagan. You know, you can look at, you can hold up Reagan. Cool. Before Reagan, you got Ford, who is kind of forgettable and a little tainted by Nixon. You certainly don't want to hold up Nixon. You don't want to hold up Watergate guy. Before Nixon, you got Ike. Ike was a little too friendly with the Democrats. You know, he, he passed some progressive stuff. Uh, he, he wasn't really a true conservative. Um, before Ike, you got Hoover. You're not going to hold up the Great Depression guy. Before cool, you got Coolidge. Okay, Roaring Twenties. We we got some stuff we can work with there. Before him, you got Harding, as you mentioned, yep. incompetent. You know, like totally forgettable. Before him, you got uh, Taft and Theodore Roosevelt, who are uh, progressives. You know, um, people forget Taft was, but Taft kind of was. Yeah. Uh, and before that, you got like you know. Now you're going almost too far back. You're going to McKinley and like the 19th century. So I think that's one of the reasons that Coolidge gets brought up because they're like we need to find more of a historical thread here. And uh, we'll take what we got to work with. All right. So that makes actually, I think that's uh, that's an interesting argument. I, I think that there's at least some of that going on. Um, uh, although I guess Amity Schles wrote a biography of Ke- Coolidge, which I haven't read. Um, you see, if you get her on the podcast. That might challenge some of your priors. <laughs> I mean, no, it might, might be a good project for you. I don't know. I, if, I uh, you know, when, when I get there. through all the presidents, I think I'll go back and, and look for more uh, historians to interview about their books. So that might happen down the road. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't want to go back. That'll fake everyone out. So, right. Um, <laughs> all right. So I said I'd have a mystery question. So uh, here's here's the mystery question. Uh, so you can go on a pub crawl with three or four presidents, wide-ranging conversation. They're all going to tell you the truth of what they think about stuff, well-lubricated. Mm. Um, um, who do you go with? Um, any, any president from any era, or are we still sticking pre-FDR? Oh, we can go with any president from any era. Any president. All right, all right. Let's put uh, certainly Theodore Roosevelt and Lincoln on that list because they, they'd be interesting and fun. I'm going to throw Chester Arthur on there. Like I said, he's a good time. He's just going to make sure we're having fun. And then let me think of another president who would be, you know, um, there's part of me that wants to pull LBJ over there. Just as we said, such a momentous presidency. It would be interesting to, to talk to the guy and be like, so what was going on with this? What that? What do you have? Uh, to, and what do you have to teach about how to, you know, be an influent, influencer, which he certainly was. So that might be the four who come to mind, uh, just real quick off the top of my head. So if you were going to provoke a conversation, though, over, over drinks, yeah. um, you know, the conversation I would love to hear and sort of you know, there's this old show on PBS, the meeting, meeting of the minds, I think it was called. You might have been like a embryo then. But Steve Allen yeah. would invite in, would have actors playing different people from history and they'd have this dinner time conversation. It was a, a show that people like me anyway thought was pretty interesting. Wouldn't you like to see Lincoln and Jefferson have a conversation? Sure. Like, yeah. wouldn't that be... That would be a debate. Wouldn't that be... I mean, because Jefferson, um, notwithstanding his um, owning of slaves, raping of slaves, right. Uh, right. Uh, he also had a pretty well-developed sense of foreboding about the 
existence yes. of slavery. Uh, I think yeah. I think he, he was in you know he was born into it, and like so many people born into it, it's very hard to see a way out of it. Um, yeah. Uh, which you know is really difficult. I mean, if 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 you look at that, I'm not trying to exonerate Jefferson. What I'm saying is, he saw the train wreck that Lincoln had to deal with. He saw it coming in some form or fashion, and yep. and yet saw no path out. I, I to me that would be a fascinating conversation. Uh, I agree, and and I. I, I uh, you know, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that could tell you what was the peaceful solution to slavery that could have actually been implemented at any point, you know, and it's hard to think like nobody ever has that answer. Uh, but Jefferson and Lincoln uh, having a discussion. Yeah, I'd watch that. I'd buy tickets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, I think that that would be a uh, that would be a very interesting conversation. Um, so after uh um, this is another one we didn't talk about, but it's been poking my thoughts. Sure. When you talked about didn't the know. next presidents to go up and down. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that the next president to be reassessed in a more favorable way yeah. will actually be Nixon. I I will not disagree I haven't started my research into him yet, but from what I know of him, that does that has been a thought of mine too. Interesting. Well, we're we will look forward, uh, work forward to that. So I want to contend with. Uh, I want to get off presidents for a couple minutes. I want to contend with a, a point you just made because it's a it's a cranky uh, a, a cranky thing that I've I've sort of been. Uh, um, contending with for years, uh, your assertion as a journalist that uh, uh, journalism's the first draft of history. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you got a bone to pick. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I would offer I would offer a different take. I would offer a different take. Yeah, I think um, I would argue that um, journalism is the raw material of history. Journalism is a contemporaneous take. It happens to be published, but it's really mm -hmm. no different than other things that we view as the raw material of history. It's not different from a diary, which is not published, mm -hmm. but we now right, love, love to get <laughs> fingers crossed. Don't be embarrassed. We love to get our hands on them uh, uh, in the study of history. It's, yep. it's, it's not different really than correspondence, which when it surfaces is often important material. And indeed, you see journalism today being used as the raw material of history. Accounts from colonial newspapers mm. have influenced scholarship yeah. from, you know, around motives for the American Revolution and that sort of thing. So I throw mm -hmm. that out there. Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of think that this notion of journalism being the first draft of history is sort of a conceit of major media organizations uh, who, you know, want to promote their own uh, uh, influence on on the country. Uh, that's my own two cents. I, I that it's a, a cranky little, you know, sentiment that I have. Um, sure, I, I'd say it's semantics. I think. They all mean the same thing, whether you call it the first draft or not, is this is the 
live expression as it's happening of what one group of people can gather and put out there, you know, because it's certainly not the full picture, but it's part of the picture. Um, and whether you call it the first draft, whether you call it part of history, it's uh, certainly formative to our memories of history. Well, I have no argument, no argument with that. So, so what, what do you uh, enjoy about podcasting? Um, you know, I love uh, the learning, the reading that goes into it. I, I just so enjoy cracking open a book and knocking out some chapters and just seeing what crazy things have happened in the history of the United States with these folks who are in the presidency. Uh, so I really enjoy the re reading and research part of it. Uh, the writing I enjoy too. I, I love putting my thoughts to paper. Uh, well, not paper anymore, you know, typing them into a computer, but uh, getting those drafts and getting clarity through the writing process as you go from notes to outline to first draft to second draft to uh, reading it out loud into a microphone. Uh, and I enjoy the meeting of folks, you know, being able to come on here and talk to you and get to know you and uh, some of the other fellow podcasters that I've met, meeting the historians I've been able to have onto the show. And then I can reach out to them later when I got questions or thoughts, you know, and building those relationships. So those are all things I've really enjoyed. Yeah, that is. I, I agree with all of that. So, so, what uh what's your approach in putting together an episode like uh you know i'm I'm just curious how you go yeah. about your work so i you know the the first part is the reading, so I'll read a book on each president in order, and I try to stay well ahead of the curve. So right now, the last episode was about Hoover. I'm currently reading about l b j that is, you know, what is that? FDR, Ike, uh, uh, Truman, FDR, Truman, Ike, uh, JFK, LBJ. That's like five presidents ahead of the curve. I like to be five or six ahead of the curve, so that's great. Um, as I'm reading, I'm taking notes and I'm marking pages, you know. Uh, and then at the end of each book, I'll kind of jot down some of my top impressions. Like, what are my immediate thoughts after finishing this book on this guy? Uh, what do I feel are kind of those biggest three things to remember or, or maybe some of the lessons of them? What are some of the broad thoughts that might shape an episode? And then I set that down and I keep going. I'll come back to it maybe a month later or so. And I'll try to turn that into an outline, bullet point outline. You know, boom, 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 um, with, with sub bullets and all, and all this stuff. What, what is my rough structure, the main sections I want to have, and what are the main facts I want to capture? Um, and if I'm really on a roll, I might turn that outline into the first draft. Uh, or otherwise, oh, and also look for where do I put question marks? Because as I'm taking notes, I'll often put question marks, confirm this, double check that, you know? So this is when the fact checking starts. Uh, then I'll eventually write a first draft where I try to make it all come together. Uh, then I'll eventually write a second draft, more double checking, and then I eventually record. So that's that's how it goes. Read, uh, notes, outline, first draft, second draft, record. Hopefully, uh, many presents in advance, so I've got a lot of time to work on this. And hopefully, uh, episodes are uploaded two months before they go on air. Um, I like to have that lead time because you never know what life's going to throw at you. And I'd hate to miss much. Like last summer, last summer I got married, <laughs> went on a honeymoon, That'll do it. started a new job <laughs> and moved. Yeah. You know, so it's like that burned all of my <laughs> advance planning right out the window. And now I've been rebuilding my advance. So if, you know, 
life throws crazy things at me again, I'll, I'll be like, okay, cool. Let me just set this on the side for a minute and focus on these other life priorities. Uh, and, and then I can pick the podcast stuff back up. But my listeners haven't noticed a break. That's uh, that's impressive level of organization. I I, I basically operate. <laughs> I'm a program manager at my day job right now, so <laughs> I, I basically operate it at best a week in advance. So, so uh, I I I'm I'm doing a somewhat different thing because since it's not focused on something specific like presidencies, I'm. Um, uh, I change my mind uh, pretty often about the next thing I'm going to do, right? And that becomes more and more possible yeah. as American history gets more depth. Uh, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. And uh, uh, I, so it's 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 interesting. I have been trying to feel my way through New England in the 1630s, and uh, it's. Uh, Involved some backing and filling, but so far I don't think I've gotten a lot of pushback from from listeners. But it is for me. I I say I follow my muse, and I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Mm -hmm. Although I, I think the next couple episodes are going to be on on uh, Roger Williams. So are, uh, have you found? Uh, are your listeners sending you emails and stuff? Do you uh, do you enjoy that kind of thing? Do they do you get in arguments with them or? Um, or or the, the most interaction happens on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. Uh, I, I have a Facebook. People interact a little bit on Facebook, yeah. but I've, I've even kind of stopped really promoting it. It's just a harder – like I deleted the app from my phone <laughs> because I, I, I generally hate social media. Um, and, and when you don't have the app, Facebook becomes a harder interface to work with. Uh, but Twitter is pretty easy. So that's where I do most of my interactions. You know, I post stuff every day. Uh, sometimes I'll even post like polls or surveys and encourage that engagement, you know, uh, maybe encourage a little bit of debate, get some people talking, get some people thinking. I'll even ask for book recommendations sometimes, you know, things like that. Or, hey, um, guys, I'm getting ready to plan historians for FDR. What, what kind of historians do, what topics do you want me to talk to historians about? So, you know, I'll, I'll try to get the feel of them uh, that way. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's really fun and healthy to get the feedback when they're willing to offer it because it helps me make a better podcast and a better show. Um, I can't think of any times I've gotten in a big <laughs> argument with any listener. I've certainly got some like negative reviews that I was like, well, that's your opinion, man, uh, <laughs> or things like that. I do remember... I, I once, this was maybe two years ago, when I was coming up on Andrew Jackson, I had a listener who was emphatically uh, pinging me and saying, like, you have to break the story about how Andrew Jackson was in a BDSM relationship with one of his slaves. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, if you go to where he's buried, the slave's graveyard is right next to his. Surely they were in a BDSM relationship for him to be buried next to a slave. And I was just like... That's your opinion. All right. Cool. <laughs> so you never know what you're going to hear from folks. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's true. I've had very nice uh, uh, comments and feedback almost exclusively so far. But mm -hmm. I am in a part of American history still that most people know very little about I knew very little about it, yeah. uh, very little bit yeah. about it until I started working my way through it. So 
you know, uh, so I tend to get things like I, I will talk about some, you know, obscure uh, failed settlement in the, you know, northeastern coast somewhere, the Popham colony or something. And I'll have a listener in the area will go take pictures of the of the historical oh, markers and other things, you know, but it's all there's not a lot of uh, uh, controversy around the, 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 the hottest subject, which I've touched uh, was the arrival of the 20 and odd in, in Jamestown in 1619, which, of course, is mm. super uh, high profile, uh, today. Yep. Uh, but I, I, yep. uh, worked it through without actually referring to the 1619 project or any of that. My model has been very much to, you know, weigh the evidence and talk through sure. the circumstances at the time without tying it so much to the present. But I think it'll get a right. lot more fraught as I, as I get into, uh, this, the 18th century, uh, there's going to be a lot more, uh, opinion sharing, yeah. I suspect, which I'm looking forward to. I think it should be, I can promise you it will. I've definitely noticed in my podcast. And I think anybody who does one of these narrative podcasts where it starts further back and it marches toward modern times, the closer you get to modern times, you don't have to change your approach at all, but people will suddenly decide that you're being political and you have a political opinion and they don't like it. <laughs> well, you know, if I, yeah, 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 you know, and it's just like the closer you get to modern times, the, the more sensitive they get to that, you know, like if, if I say, um, you know, I say slavery was bad. Okay, cool. People, people generally agree with that and presence owned slaves like that's unfortunate. Yeah. They, they generally agree with that. Uh, but it, as you get, closer to more live issues and you start sharing those issues, even if you try to avoid saying like good or bad, you're just trying to explain it. You know, they might not like the way you explain it. You know, they might not like the way, like I try to explain what's going on in the economy often. And nobody ever complained about how I described any of the recessions or depressions of the 18th century. But, uh, you know, when I start trying to explain the, the Great Depression and the Roaring Twenties, I got some people who are like, I disagree with what you said. I don't like your take on maybe trickle down economics or something like that. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad people now have an opinion on economic policy. Great. Cool. Well, I think that part of that is that the, um, you know, the policy responses from both Hoover and FDR to the depression uh, and their actual effectiveness and which policy responses had affirmative and negative long-term consequences are still very live mm. political topics today because we're still wrestling with them. You know, it might have been a little bit better to have, you know, in retrospect, would we have structured Social Security exactly the way we did, even if we had agreed to provide a safety net? I'm guessing we would have come up with a different funding mechanism, uh, knowing what we know now, which is the whole thing was dependent upon, you know, having seven kids. And when people started having one or two, it began to get to be you know, very challenging and so forth. So there, there's a lot that's still echoing in political arguments today um, uh, that go back to those eras. So I, I think 
for you, it's only getting worse. You're, you're, you're oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're, you're going to... I'll not put my hand. I'll just say, you know, as I said, a lot of these interviews are already recorded. So you've got some fun historians with opinions on uh, the New Deal coming up. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Have you ever... Uh, I'll throw this out there in case he's listening. Have you ever uh, reached out to H.W. Brands at the University of Texas? I'm going to... Yeah, yeah. I have plans to interview him in a week. Ah, okay. We're going to talk about FDR and his uh, book, Trader to His Class. So fingers crossed <laughs> that, you know, you never know when something might happen. But I'm, I'm hoping to talk to him in just over a week. That's fantastic. I uh, I enjoy his Substack, which uh, I think yeah. is uh, an example of... Uh, a relevant historical writing that does not beat one over the head from a partisan perspective. I, I you know, it's, uh, I think, uh, very interesting. Yeah. I think he's one of the best writers too. Yes. Like it's just, he's so readable, you know, and it's always such a joy to read uh, one of his books. And I, I really, I do not know how the guy is so prolific. He puts out like practically a book a year. It's amazing. Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking to him. You should ask him that question uh, if, if you're if you've got the time in the interview. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, sorry. That'll prep him if he's listening to this. And Professor Brands, if you, <laughs> Professor Brands, if you are, I'd love to interview you too. But I'm about a hundred years away from your first book. <laughs> Yep. Um, so is there anything else you want to tell us how best to find your podcast? Oh, sure. Yeah. You can find my podcast on any uh, podcast platform that you listen to, you know, Amazon, Google, uh, YouTube, uh, not YouTube, what you call Spotify, you know, Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's Abridged Presidential Histories. Uh, you can also search aph.buzzsprout.com to find the website, which will have links to all the different places you can listen to it. And you can find me on Twitter, APH Podcast. Uh, so those are all the, the best places to find me. Well, Kenny, this has been very interesting. Do you want to close with any other presidential comments? Uh... Um. You know, I, I actually had a question I'd love to ask you. You know, I, I spend so much time focusing on presidential history, but my podcast also started with Washington, started the first one. And, and what you've been looking at in the super early American history, do you see anything that looks like that gives you hints of, oh, I can see like the proto-American presidency here? You know, what, what did leadership look like back then? Did you have uh, royal governors, you know, leading from on high? Do you have local congresses or committees? Do you have them electing their own leader? Do you see anything that you're like, I can see the, the first threads of the American presidency back here in 1630s Massachusetts or wherever you're reading about? I think it's difficult to see the first uh, threads of the American presidency, true executive authority. Uh, there is a uh, there are early examples of, you know, something like self-governance, which are today very much hyped as those. So what are the famous examples? One is the Virginia House of Burgesses, which uh, met for the first time in the summer of 1619. And that was essentially um, 
elected, sort of elected representatives from local plantations uh, that met for the first time, no one would have said it was democratic. It was a <laughs> it, 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 it was a device. Well, not just because it was a narrow electorate, but it was a device right. for uh, responding to local problems. The Virginia Company had essentially mm. been trying to manage uh, what was going on in Virginia across the Atlantic. When, of course, there was at best a four-month lag time between something happening and a response from London about what to do with it. And so they eventually totally. they eventually said sort of, all right, well, we need to have a body other than simply the governor who can take some action and has some credibility. And so they authorized this. And the first time it met was 1619. So big uh Fans of Virginia as hmm. the cradle of the United States often cite that assembly of great significance. New Englanders, of course, famously point to the Mayflower Compact, which uh, was signed just as the Mayflower reached Provincetown in December of 1620. And there, uh, essentially all the adult men, including the servants, um, with one or two exceptions, signed a essentially a commitment to self-government. And that probably has a more credible um, um, place as the very, very first germination of self-government because the pilgrims, of course, were not governed from anywhere else. They were... They had investors, but they were fundamentally refugees and had to make their mm -hmm. way uh, at the edge of the wilderness on their own. And William Bradford and Edward Winslow and a couple others were routinely elected to serve as governor by their people uh, thereafter. For uh, and 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 then the third example uh, was in the Massachusetts Bay where um, the Puritans who went with the Winthrop migration set up um, a, a, uh, a, a sort of very minimal proto-democracy, although they never would have called it that, um, built around uh, male church members. Uh, and they church membership was constrained for reasons that are far too involved to get into here. But not for political purposes. It w they were constrained because there was a very concrete notion of what it was to be a visible saint and so forth, which is so those are the three very <laughs> early examples that people love to point to as the first of something. But, you know, the truth is none of those things were more, quote unquote, democratic than the House of Commons, even in the early 1600s. Sure. So so the, the, none of this was super new, but it was not like yeah. anything that the Spanish were doing. So in that regard, <laughs> in that regard, the English history is pretty relevant. Anyway, well, why don't we if you as you continue reading, if you ever discover something, they're like, oh, my God, it's almost like a proto presidency in like 1700s. Shoot me a note. I would love to hear about it. I, 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 will, <laughs> I, will, I will be sure. To, well, I'm sure we'll see some of that as the as the colonies become developed, which will happen over the course of the 1600s. Right. And in my case, it'll happen you know, over most of the rest of this year. 
Uh, some yeah. of those colonies had royal governors and some of those colonies had right. locally determined governors and uh, oh. they had different um, governing traditions and, and, and so forth. And uh, there, we uh, there we go. So it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we wrap it up for now? But I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday up there in the secure undisclosed location of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, <laughs> uh, very much appreciate. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jack. It was a great conversation. All right. Well, I'll wrap it with my usual close. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And if any of those are want to challenge Kenny on any of his takes, I'll be sure to pass them <laughs> along. Until next time. <laughs>